0: hello everybody welcome to the riff hard podcast our guest today is gary holt who is a guitarist band leader and main songwriter for thrash metal band exodus as well as a member of slayer from 2011 until they retired he's known as the godfather of thrash he needs no introduction let's do this gary holt welcome to the riff hard podcast
1: how you doing guys
0: very good thanks for being here
1: Uh, my pleasure
0: all right, let's just get into it. I was actually just doing a podcast before this with Peter Takran. We were talking about guitar tone in the hands. And he didn't know that we're about to talk to you. And when he was talking about guitar players that just have tone in the hands, he brought you up and Alexi up and said that you actually don't play with that much gain, but it sounds like you are because you're picking so fucking hard. So I'm wondering, A, is that true? that you don't use much gain and B, do you think tone is more in the hands or in the gear?
1: Um, First off, I'll just say, thank you, Peter is one of my closest friends and uh, one of my musical heroes. And I'm super stoked that he's doing another hypocrisy album. Finally. Um, Yeah. And uh, tone tone is a peculiar thing. I think it's every bit as much as in the hands and you know a combination of all the things technical the guitars and all that you know he's absolutely right that my tone is not as gainy as it sounds because whenever anybody else grabs my guitar it sounds like the gain has just been turned down like significantly you know I play really hard I mash on the strings hard I play a little bit above the bridge you know because I want to get that deep mute you know and um and my action is ridiculously high, usually on tour. You know, it's like people will look at my guitars and go, holy shit. I'll look at my guitars when I come home from a tour. <laughs> like, you know, after, you know, like, you know, when you're really firing on all cylinders and your strength is at its peak, you know, I keep going to like, when I was out with Slayer, I'd go to my guitar tech, Warren Lee, like, give it another crank here. Give it another crank. And I'll get home and pull the thing out. Like when my Slayer gear returned to me, And I pulled the guitar out for the first time several months later, you know, to restring and tune it up for Exodus. I was like, holy shit look at these strings they're like a mile off the fretboard but it allows me to dig in you know like and i like to dig in and almost get under that string you know it works for me you know like ola england did a review of one of my signatures and he was describing my tone and and he said it's like really gainy and i i wanted to hit him up and say it's not you just got your action too low bro do
0: you uh set it differently depending on the project like higher for slayer or lower for exodus or is it you just like it high as fuck the end
1: i just like it high as fuck on tour you know i get home i'll lower it down but i'd never like a low action i don't like to hear the metallic rattle of the frets you know and um like uh i just recently jammed at a a benefit for uh, my drummer tom hunting and i it, and the boneless ones played and it's craig le cicero you know a friend of mine and And i got up and played on his guitar and i couldn't even play that thing the action was so low like what the fuck? if i had an allen wrench handy i would have cranked that thing up like three full turns before i even played i i think for me it goes back to the early days you know like when in exodus uh you know we i didn't own like a fine gibson les paul or even a fine fender strat we built guitars i would take like three strat copies and make one decent guitar out of them but the frets were never that perfectly milled because these were like, you know, budget guitars and I'd have to crank my action up to avoid fret buzz.
0: So it's like out of necessity and then it became the way you do things.
1: Yeah, I just don't like it. The feel. I don't want to hear the frets. I want to get high end from the amp, not from the guitar itself. You know, I, I don't want the frets to make things treblier than I want you know and like as far as the illusion of gain most of that for me is based on like i'm always running some version of a parametric mid band in my rig you know whether it's actual parametric or one of a couple of signature pedals i have to dial in enough of that like wah pedal attack you know and uh then tailor it to where it loses that wah sound but it's still just hyper aggressive and you know so there's a lot of like top end going on there and and uh coupled with all the other factors you know yeah it sounds like there's a, sometimes a ferocious amount of game
0: i like to refer to it as a tone pie it's not ever just one thing that makes a monstrous tone it's like everything from how usable are the mids how hard are you playing where is your yeah, action exactly. what kind of pickups what kind of pick like all all that stuff factors in
1: yeah call it like a tonamisu <laughs> basically bad <laughs> dad joke sorry <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah it's a it, there's so many factors involved you know pick strings and all that you know like um and now like in in exodus at our tuning which is d standard i use like a hybrid set of strings i used to use just 10 to 52 and then like uh, since i've been suffering from elbow tendinitis really bad i use the unwound set off nine so it's super slinky on the. T- On the high stuff, but still tight enough on the low, and and it works out great, you know.
0: What are you doing about the tendonitis, just out of curiosity?
1: Well, I mean, I've been doing physical therapy when we started rehearsing for the album. I had my most recent round of uh cortisone injections. I've had more than I can count. I don't even know how many. And uh they worked, got me through the whole rehearsal and all that, and I blew them out recording the rhythm guitars to the beatings will continue, you know, downpicking just destroyed the right elbow. Then I got another series of injections that didn't really work. And then I finally got MRIs and they were just torn and shredded. Like I'd turned them to mush. You know, the cortisone is just a giant Band-Aid. And uh, I didn't play guitar for several months, not more than like five minutes at a time, maybe four times. And, uh, But I'm back now. I'm back able to play. I'm still dealing with it. It'll be a lifelong thing because, you know, I ripped shit up in there. The left was the first one. And uh, just, you know, repetitive you know injury kind of thing and and so going with the lighter strings so I like to bend and you know, I like to bend big and uh and it just hurts the bending triggers that little spot right there on the corner of the elbow where the damage is but you know Uli Roth uh on uh when we did 70,000 tons of uh metal was talking to myself and Lee and we we're talking about strings and Lee said his strings were hurting his fingers and uli said they should never hurt your fingers your strings are too heavy and if his tone is good with light strings if billy gibbons can sound like he does with sevens i don't need to like try to win the heavy gauge string war
0: sevens is ridiculous but i gotta say that it's not that i think the heavy string thing is a myth but i've been involved in quite a few studio shootouts with uh several really great guitar tone producers. And it doesn't matter as much as people think it does. There are other things that matter way more.
1: Yeah. Like for myself in particular, you know, my tone is based on high action and uh, mashing really hard. And like when I've I've tried like really heavy strings and they don't move, but you can't mash them. They just kind of like ring in a perfectly in tune static note but you can't make them go, whomp, you know, they just go, bam, bam, you know, and that's cool.
0: Elevator cables.
1: Yeah. They, it doesn't work for me. You know, I need to be able to push, you know, cause even a set of 52s, I'm still tuned a full step down. So, you know, they're tight enough, but it's not like, you know, fifty twos tuned 440, you know, and then the nine end of the things is nice and buttery and I can bend them all the way across the fretboard and, you know, vibrato is better. And I'm not hurting myself as much.
0: One problem that people who play super hard have is staying in tune. Before the advent of an Evertune, you could really, really tell. I call it death grip, though. Like when guitar players take a guitar that is in tune and make it sound out of tune when they're playing. I think that players who know what they're doing and play really hard have figured out how to overcome that. But it's a serious thing that needs to be overcome.
1: And if factor in the fact that for years in my career I, I played scallop fretboards too. Oh man. So you know guys that play my guitars and the bridge they're pushing the bridge down, their left hand is pushing strings down and it sounds like a fucking mess. Seriously. <laughs> like <laughs> wow this thing's so out of tune and I grab it and go ping.
0: It sounds to me like you have the hardest guitar to play. No, it's not. Like, I'm just like Floyd Rose with the action super high with like scallop frets and playing really hard.
1: Well, I, I don't scallop them anymore. I, you know, once I went to like a Gibson scale, you know, the 20, 24 and three quarters, you know, it's shortened up and loosened up the action a little. So I, I don't bother scalloping them anymore. But um, yeah, you know, I guess, you know, to some people it'd be incredibly difficult guitar play. But I mean, they play like butter.
0: It's giving me anxiety.
1: I mean, uh, guys will grab my guitar and they go, wow, what strings do you use? And, you know, there's something magical about it. It plays like butter. I said, no, it's just really great fret jobs and just a good setup, you know? But, um, you know, like, it's not hard to play. To me, it's much harder playing someone else's guitar where the actions like strings are laying on the fret.
0: Something you brought up earlier. I want to go back to that because... Just, just kind of blew by it, and it's really, really interesting. You said that you guys built guitars. Yeah, you don't hear about that very often.
1: Well, you know, I was a poor kid from the hood. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. You know, like, and you know, I'd get it, my first guitar. I played, and I played it everywhere. It's on the back of Bonded my Blood. It's the one guitar I wish I still owned. Is my Hondo Strat? The Hondo. You know, it's as cheap as it made in the early '80s. And you know, I slapped the humbucker in that thing, and uh. My friend's dad had like some machinery stuff, so we routed out the bridge with, for the bar, and we custom bent like a, a thicker bar. You can see it right on Bond of Blood. You know, it's you know definitely much larger in diameter because um, you know I didn't I would break the regular little skinny bars, and so you know, I made this really big one. I would Teflon tape around the threads because I, I, to this day, I cannot stand playing a whammy bar. When I see a guy, even Eddie Van Halen, with his bar swinging around in circles, I want to fucking jump up on stage and tighten that thing down. It's like, <laughs> it drives me nuts. Like, Kerry <laughs> King, I'd look at his Kaler and it's just waving around. and Like, I just want to go over and spin it tight for him. <laughs> like, you know, because I want to be able to just flick mine with my finger and it moves past the knobs. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to, like, move it gently and there's no knock you know every movement the string moves you know i don't want it to go and uh bounce around and you know so i did all those things you know to the guitar you know like filed the nut slots to like really wide and slippery and you know put the graphite in there you know before i even had graphite lube i'd just take a pencil and just shave a lot of shavings off into the little thing and the way we'd wrap the strings is you know i use a a, a hondo stock bar for years and i dive bombed the hell out of that thing and it'd stay in perfectly in tune i still know all the ancient secrets <laughs> i'll never tell
0: basically out of necessity
1: out of necessity and you know we were i was also a tinkerer you know i grew up my father you know i had a full wood shop in the garage you know routers and table saws and all that and i could just build stuff i scalloped my first fretboards you know the, did almost all of them myself until I got to the point where I could just ask the company to do it you know you start with some crap neck someone gave you that's worthless but it's a good starting point to practice and next thing you know you're almost looking at a truss rod you know up oh, I went a little too deep <laughs> and uh and then you get good at it you know and uh, I scalloped all my guitars back in the back in the eighties and some in the nineties.
0: Do you mess with any guitar building now?
1: I still set them up myself, but as far as like, you know, now everything I'm playing nowadays, is neck through body, you know, but you know, if I have a bolt on, which I still love bolt ons, love them. You know, it's just something about them. They have a spank to them. The first thing I'd always do is take the neck off and shim it, you know, cause uh, you know, the old shred era, all the guitars, the Floyd Rose was like almost below the body and the neck was completely flat. And I fucking hated that. So I'd shim the hell out of the neck to give it like a, a Les Paul angle. I could bring that Floyd up above it so I have pool room. And I can also get my right hand on that bridge without feeling the body. You know, I would do all that kind of stuff. I'd go by like heavy duty uh, screen material. The really thick like uh, screen would make great shims material because it also bites into the wood and doesn't slide around. Cool stuff.
0: All right, let's talk about downpicking. Is that something that you worked on specifically? Uh, like you drilled it specifically or it was, it just part of the style and you just developed it as part of the style.
1: I think it was part of the style. I mean, you know, we have our share of it. We don't rely on it. You know that's not a bad thing, but you know, like, you know, Headfield, it's like his number one ace in the hole, you know, is, you know, his insane down picking ability. And in my prime pre elbows torn to bits, you know, <laughs> you know, I can downpick with the best of them, you know, and uh some of the stuff in our older catalog is insanely downpicked, like the song Verbal Razors is nuts, you know, because it's downpicked like crazy. Plus, you're having to jump from that downpick E note all the way up to all these like beating around the bush ish style riffing, you know. But um I don't know, it's just part of the music style. It was required, you know, you just did it, it came natural, you know. Well, I
0: know that John agrees. I think it's one of those essential techniques for getting good at metal. But I also think that it's one of the hardest things to keep up with. Like, I know that if I don't play for a X amount of time, it's the first thing to go. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. First thing to go is the down picking triplets and all that shit and stuff. It's kind of a lot easier down picking goes f- first, but you know, over the years, you know, I've learned some cheats, you know, and we all have cheats, you know, i even watch james you know james he'll throw in a bowl right when you know you know the hands getting a little tired you know you know playing master of public you know we all throw in a boom when we want to like chop out those last two that might lag you know but you know i'll do a thing a lot of times where i go down down up down 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 up down down down, you know and um on certain riffs i do this thing i call waltz picking you know because it's like one two three one two three and andy snoop we were recording one of our albums and he he looked and he goes, what the hell are you doing? He had had no idea. And I've been playing like that since, you know, I started, you know, on certain riffs and, uh, and he never caught it. And then he looked at it and he grabbed my guitar and he's like, I can't do that. Save my life. And if a riff is like, say you have a drum beat, that's double kick, snare, mid-tempo, I'll go instead of going, I'll go. And that way I can accept that snare you know, and I just have always done that, you know, things you learn, you know, that work for you might not work for other people. You know, you might thought everybody in the world does it. I don't know. It's just, so I do that a lot of time rather than just straight down. It's just like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. It's like a waltz, you know, one, two, three, one, two, three.
0: I, I, uh, I just was told that Rob Barrett from cannibal corpse does three down one up that that's his thing. Three down, one up, three down, one up.
1: Yeah. And if I tried to do that right now, I'd I'd fall on my face, you know, failing in the attempt. Now I want to try it though.
0: (laughs) I tried it and I was like, oh, okay. I totally hear it now all over their riffs.
1: One, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Yeah. Gives it that little slight pause to like regroup.
0: It's important, I think, to do what you got to do in order to be able to finish out the riff, A. And also, as you know, like save your fucking arms.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, some some parts are harder and like you get in that mode on tour where you're really feeling good and you're like, you don't worry. And then you get it the other times like, here it comes, <gasps> take a deep breath and guck, 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 you know, and you just try to get through it. So <laughs> It's like, not always that easy.
0: Do you find that it's just different days feel different or is it one of those things where... Not as warmed up, or like, have you figured out what causes it to be harder at some points than others?
1: For me, in all things playing, it relates to sound. If my sound is really good and I'm fucking loving it and it's exactly how I want it to be on stage, I can play all my stuff without hesitation. If my sound is off on stage, which you know is could be you know all the time, you know, every venue is different the sound is different. I have known guys who could play anything they play on any goddamn amp rig. You know, they, you could, they could be hammered at a party and pull out someone's battery powered pig nose and just start <laughs> down picking and shredding. And like, you know, they, you want to jam? Nope. Nope. Why not? <laughs> Cause that thing sounds like shit and I'm going to play like <laughs> shit because there's no way I could get any feel out of that thing, you know? And so I'm more dependent on like being really happy with my sound. And so, you know, in the Slayer years, I might drive my monitor engineer a little crazy at production days and sound checks, you know, because I really like want to dial it in. Kerry has almost it, virtually no guitars and monitors, just all amps, you know. I, I like it coming from the wedges and side fills too. And then when you have six cabs and three amps and all monitors on it, it gets kind of loud. <laughs> Finding the sweet <laughs> spot can be tough. <laughs>
0: God, that does sound really really fucking loud
1: really really awesome you mean
0: yes that is what i meant by loud i (laughs) meant awesome
1: no i was punishing the power and it sounded sick you know but for me it's always finding that compromise between rhythm sound and lead sound like if i never played lead i would just set my stage shit for stun and it'd be done and fine but then i always like to play off the hall you know on leads i want to hear the ambient nature of the room and if your shit's coming from all corners of your side of the stage at like at a stun gun level it's hard to hear the the sweet ambiance of the room you know so, so you know like with slayer like my lighting guy realized he's got to light up sometimes the furthest corner of the stage carry i'll go right there in front of his wedges and solo i'm going to go over here cuz look i can hear a little pa right here but i'm all the way in the corner of the stage like i'm leaving yeah. like gary holt's out he's out on his way out the door you know where's he going
0: <laughs> well, fuck this shit. sounds
1: awesome right here you know that's where i'm gonna go so he'd always like light up those little normally dark spots for me you know the jubilee i've been playing for quite a few years now you know i went through some other marshals you know i had, i was playing jeff's heads at first and you know, 800s, and I love an 800, but they were really clean. Maybe they just needed servicing. Uh, the first couple of tours, I had them sounding really good. And, uh, you know, and that I, I was loud. You know, no one cared. I dialed it in the way I wanted it, you know, because I have to feel comfortable. When uh, Pat O'Brien filled in for me for those few shows on my first European tour, they changed everything to suit him, which was perfectly fine. But I never got it back the way I wanted it. So, you know, I went through, I used the JVMs for a little bit, which are great. I used the DSLs, which sounded great on rhythm. I didn't like the lead sound. And then I got the Jubilees and it was just golden. And, you know, I've been a Marshall guy my whole life, even though I went to some other amps. And uh, and a sneep kind of put it best. A while back, you said, you know, the, your sound, no matter what amp you're playing, you're chasing your old Marshall sound. I said, yeah, you're probably right. Because, you know, the amps I liked, you know, were ones that I could replicate that sound on. And now I don't have to copy anything. I'm just doing it. You know, it's awesome.
0: You're just doing what actually creates that sound in the first place.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, because my modded Marshalls, you know, I have three JCM 800, 1987, EL 34 heads, and they're like, you know the best marshals on earth proved me wrong, and he he's he's sworn me to will him one when I die. But also, I won't take him on tour anymore. You know they're they're very old. I have a profile of them for my camper though, and that's when I travel with the camper. That's what I use.
0: That was my next question. Actually, was what are your thoughts on campers?
1: I love it. I've used them all the time. I use them all over the world. Um, I have like three of them. It allows me to carry my tone on a flash drive in my pocket you know uh, the last time exodus played japan i didn't even take a guitar i had esp provide me with a couple of my signatures uh the promoters provided me with campers i showed up with a wah pedal uh, an overdrive and a flash drive and played like this huge (laughs) hall it was awesome everybody else is lugging all their testament we're on the bill too and uh they're lugging all their guitars and you know where's your shit i bring nothing (laughs) <laughs> it's all being provided here walked up put the flash drive in uploaded my profile uh my tech set the guitars uh, they were already strong exactly how i wanted them and uh played the show and handed them back it's awesome i wish every gig is like that
0: technology when it's working is such a beautiful thing
1: but you know the the thing the kemper doesn't do for me is um it lacks something on the high stuff on the leads you know rhythm wise it's crushing and sounds killer and um you know that's where an amp beats it. You know, but when I use the Kemper, I never use the direct out. I run it into an app. so you know I'm still getting full power tubes. Yeah, meet It makes speakers, sense. Meet microphone, meet monitors. You know, and so it's I'm just treating it like a preamp. It's all I do.
0: From my vantage point, I think that the preamp is actually much less of a factor than uh, microphones and cabinets and.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a holy trinity of like tone creators, you know, like I always run it into Marshalls, you know, so I'm getting that full Marshall power tube section. And, and then, you know, I'm getting the Celestians, you know, vintage thirties, and then I'm getting the microphone and then coming out the other speakers. And, you know, it sounds so much better than just running the direct out and going to front of house and letting the sound man fix it.
0: Yeah. You know, the thing that I think is misunderstood about the Kemper is I think a lot of people think about it as like an amp replacement.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And like it, like you profile an amp, but I don't think that that's the right way to look at it. You're just you're profiling a preamp tone.
1: Exactly. And that's the way I treat it.
0: That's it. One, one setting. Like it doesn't do well when you start moving the knobs too much. It doesn't. So like it's one, it captures one point in time. That's it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the thing. It's an invaluable tool. You know, I can... You know, I have a Pelican case that I made that holds a, a smaller footprint pedal board. It's got a slot for the Kemper and room for all my cables. So I could fly to, you know, a South American tour with a two guitar case in that Pelican and my, everything is inside it, you know, and, uh, and I can go out and play shows and be totally happy. So it's amazing.
0: I do think it's like one of the best guitar inventions of the past decade.
1: Yeah, I agree. But, you know, I have a show next week in uh, Sacramento at Aftershock Festival. I'm using amps again for the first time in a long time. I'm very excited.
0: Man, it's such a different beast. The convenience factor is amazing, but nothing quite feels like amps,
1: I think. No, like I said, especially when you start soloing, you know, like that Jubilee just has this clarity, this glassiness on the upper registers that can't be reproduced digitally close, but it's not the same.
0: Yeah. There's a lot to be said though, for the convenience factor.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: When travel is involved, a lot of travel and then also situations where who the hell knows what condition the gear might be in in certain parts of the world. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That convenience is not just, it doesn't just make your life easier. It like saves from disasters or potential I can save the show. Yeah. You
1: know, you'd go up to a show and uh you're in Lima, Peru. And you, you know, and I always when I traveled pre-Campers, you know, I'd travel with a array a of overdrives, you know, a couple of different tube screamers, super overdrives, you know, because I knew I might have to boost the hell out of some shit. And I but you'd go on stage and know your amp is like way less than stellar. You know, the shows are you're already like kind of like locking up a sand dune, just, you know, two steps forward, one back, you know, so it helps to like have confidence in your sound, you know, no matter where you're at. And, you know, if the amps truly suck as well, you know, just using them as a power amp, there is that direct out, which can bail you out in some emergencies, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, you you can play a show without an amp at all. You know, I'm probably going to get the, the little, stage model too just to even shrink the footprint of my travel rig
0: i'm curious you've brought up uh andy sneep a lot and uh i mean he's fucking great such an incredible producer and mixer and a great guitar player too oh he's killer yeah dude he's great it's just great but wondering about what it's like tracking rhythms with him
1: Awesome. And Andy's like one of my best friends walking this planet, you know, and, um, we see things eye to eye, we see the same things and we want the same things. And, uh, and he, you know, to this day, he'll still like, um, suggest things but it's him thinking the way he normally would and then you're like ah oh, you're right you know like on the new album you were, we were talking about gain his first thought on the new album was like uh, do you think the amps or the tone has too much gain and i said fuck no it doesn't you know you ain't reamping nothing of mine son <laughs> and uh but he but he listened to it and i even sent him a screenshot of the head you know the the gain on the jubilee was at like five you know it wasn't even that gainy. It's just I said, that's what you call real power tube saturation, son. Because <laughs> I had that amp dimed out. You know, I had it pretty blasting. But we just working together is amazing. He's, he's you know, one of the whole band's best friends. And uh, we have a lot of fun. He says working with Exodus is like walking into an episode of the Banana Splits. <laughs> and uh, it, it is a cartoon world of the Banana Splits. And uh, we're pretty fucking crazy. Especially when we get in the studio, the, the humor is nonstop. So it's a good environment and he and fits right in, you know, like uh, when we did a uh, tempo of the damned, you know, we were living in this uh, rental house on the studio property and uh, we were riff raffing people and that was, uh, and he'd be asleep and we'd literally roll a half stack in. In his sleep. Holy shit. On, <laughs> and I'm on the bed playing riffraff like at full volume because he'd sleep with this mask on. We called it his London bitch mask. <laughs> and uh and you know, like uh he woke up like when we did uh guitars, we were living in the studio, so he was sleeping on this cot you know, like, and like just rolling, you know, we're creeping in with a Mesa boogie half stack, you know, to Man, I'm sure he loves that. <laughs> the first thing you first thing you hear is that you know of a very loud amp and this da 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 da, 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 da 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 He's like, "Fuck you, motherfuckers!" <laughs> it's all fun, you know. It's supposed to be fun, right? <laughs> yeah it
0: it is supposed to be fun. That is absolutely the truth.
1: I mean, I love being in the studio. Being in the studio is the most awesome inspiring creative environment and it's fun it's i feel no stress in the studio we're just laughing and we'll try anything
0: it's really interesting to hear somebody say that because you know a lot of musicians are terrified of the studio
1: i i can never understand that it's the one environment where you get a redo true you go out on stage and you're like a rock god and you can't fix it it's there mm. <laughs> but in the studio you could do it again didn't get it right why why the pressure you know like it should be fun. You know, the, and this album, see the last album, we record, recorded at a, at a goat ranch. You know, we always build our own studios and we did it at a goat ranch and I actually tracked with the Kemper because I had my profile and it worked out really good, but I missed the process of getting tone. I, you know, I missed it greatly, you know, and it, it inspires your performance, the whole process of trying out all the different amps and mics and, and everything. And uh, and then arriving at that golden moment where you're ready, you play so much better when you get there that way. I think
0: what's the longest you've ever spent on the rhythm tone hunt in the studio.
1: I'm usually pretty fast at it. It's usually like on uh, the new album, for instance, I didn't touch a knob on the amp from the moment we were rehearsing these songs and writing them to actually miking up an amp, didn't touch a knob, nothing. I don't think anybody's ever done that in rock and roll.
0: That is like, pretty like, amazing. It,
1: it like was perfect. The Jubilee, all we did from then on out was microphones. We tried like a, a hundred different mic combinations and stuff, but the amp was set the exact way I've been rehearsing. And it was just flawless, you know, but usually, you know, spend a couple of days trying out different cabinets and, different amps different mics and shit like that but you know i get antsy i want to start tracking you know when it's when i know when it's right and i'm pretty competent in my tone to like you know not need help to get there and to have it pretty damn close before i ever even start
0: i like that you told him no reamping because reamping always loses something yeah always there's always just this little bit that it's lost is there something that you just cannot recreate and then also i've just never understood this about metal production is uh going on the tone hunt for several days like i've i've been involved in some tone hunts that last like a week or something and not with people who don't know what they're doing like everyone knew what they were doing it just took that long like a week of like going through like every combination of like 10 different guitars with like nine different heads with like, you know how it goes to only to reamp. Like, what did we just spend that entire yeah. week doing? Like what, what was that even for?
1: Could have grabbed your PV decade practice app and, <laughs> and just threw a mic on it and scrap it later. You only want the DI, right? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You know, like every album we do, Andy will, in the mixing stage, will experiment. He, he'll go, man, i thought I'd try and reamp the one side guitar just to give it some difference. We listened and nah, I didn't play the riffs on that tone. So it doesn't work on that tone. And everybody wants to like try a hundred different guitars, you know, and I I've got a lot of guitars and, but the, the one I go in prepared to record is always the one I use because my hand is comfortable on it at that moment. You know, like I could grab another guitar that's so almost identical, but I've been playing these riffs for three months now on this one guitar. This is what I'm using. Like on the new album, I did all my non-whammy bar tracks on a 1983 Yamaha SPG 3000 that I bought online, which is one of the greatest guitars ever made. And I got one that's flawless. And, you know, I'm not a fan of playing fixed bridge guitars all the time because my right hand is a Floyd Rose hand, but uh, that guitar felt so comfortable and it rang and tuned like it did have a set of 56s on it just awesome guitar. It sounded crushing, weighs like a thousand pounds. And uh, I walked in and that's what I'm using. You know? We recorded in the mountains, so we had to truck our gear three hours. So I, I didn't have the luxury of bringing 20 guitars. I brought like four. You know, I narrowed it down and that's what I brought.
0: But if you're comfortable with it, that's the most important factor, I think.
1: If you're comfortable with it and it doesn't sound like shit. Well, you know, yeah, of course, thing. of course. I'm of comfortable course. with it with these you know ancient invader pickups or some muddy sounding shit you know well then something has to be done
0: you're absolutely right
1: this thing sounded like gold and then i used a couple of my esps for for other stuff and uh it was perfectly happy
0: well i've i've been in the studio where like there's a guitar that's a good guitar you know let's just say like not shitty definitely not shitty like a good guitar with good pickups let's just call it a b plus guitar but the guitar player is comfortable with that as opposed to we've got some a plus guitars laying around with like, everything is amazing about them. Still the B plus guitar is going to sound better. If the guitar player is more comfortable with it.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I've gone into albums with that, like triple a plus guitar that I wanted to use and I'm comfortable with it. But for some reason at that moment in time, it was just not ringing in tune enough, you know, like intonations wobbly and you're fucking with it for hours and hours and hours. And it just like that low E just wants to like go sharp. And then you cheat the tuning to like accomplish that. And then other chords are just not happening. And, <laughs> and, uh, you just, you know, I end up wasting a bunch of time and like, fuck it. Now go and play this like guitar worth a quarter what that one's worth. And it just works out better. Yeah.
0: You know, within reason, obviously. It's not going to work with a total piece of shit, but within reason, I definitely, I don't know. I think, man, what your hands and your brain and your ears can do the best work with is what you should use.
1: Yeah. And you know, you don't always listen to producers anyway. They don't always (laughs) know what they're talking about. (laughs) Some (laughs) other producer I won't name played me a couple of different tracks by two different artists once. And he complained about the one guitar player that he insisted on using his Marshall rig and he didn't like it, but it made him happy. And I listened to it and the tone was godly. And then he played the one that he liked, which sounded like 5 million cookie cutter, 5150 guitar tones. You couldn't pick it out of a, out of a lineup of a thousand different albums. And this other dude's guitar tone was sick. And now just like this guy didn't know what he's talking about. The hell you're, you're complaining about that great guitar tone. And you're loving this like way underdriven generic tone. I don't get it sometimes.
0: I think that what that is, because I've thought about that too, is there's some metal producer mixers, they're not trying to make art. They're like doing a puzzle with numbers.
1: And they're picking the guitar tone for the guy and they're like, they're doing it exactly the way they do every record.
0: Yeah. They're checking off boxes and like putting puzzle pieces together, but they're not thinking about like, guitar player's identity or any, anything like that. Exactly. A producer can only work with what you're giving him, right? So, yeah. So if the band doesn't have an identity or a direction, they're still kind of copying other people and haven't figured it out. Like, what, what do you really expect out of the producer? They're just going to gonna try to do the best job they can with that. But, like, if you've got an artist that is who they are it's a whole different situation
1: yeah and you know like myself working with andy you know we'll try anything in the studio and they're all the kind of things i've been doing my whole life you know like you know like when we did exhibit a you know i was using a pv triple x which is a great app i love it but it needs mid-range help i don't like its actual mids in the amp and that's when i like grabbed this uh pre sonus three band parametric i had and then threw it in and just ran everything flat except for that mid band and that's when like whoa that amp just came alive just fucking grinding now but andy was always down for any of that we'll plug anything in big muff into a big muff you <laughs> whatever works you know if the end result sounds great we don't care how much shit in there or how high the great. ceiling is you know
0: just out of curiosity with the parametric was that through the effects loop or front or
1: no i run them i run it on in front of the input
0: nice eqing the di basically
1: yeah i'm just it's slapping the input gain stage silly you know that's what i've always done you know like and on the new album we actually went really old school like uh lee and i got online and we started buying a uh, vintage bbe sonic maximizers on oh my eBay. god we wanted just to just add that little bit of thump on the low end and we threw that in the effects loop and it was just so perfect i mean just barely notched up the low um and the the high on it and it was just killer you know we wanted the original ones like we used to use back in the 90s and late 80s we didn't want the reissues you know so we were scouring them on ebay and
0: the local band special
1: uh, it was it's phenomenal you know like if you listen to the tone while we were preparing to track with it off. Off you'd have said, Wow, that's amazing. If I turn it in, you would have and you were sitting there, you would have heard just the slightest difference. And uh this bigger bump in the just the the thickness of the low end is really great.
0: BBE is interesting because it's one of those pieces of gear that uh, got totally abused and misused.
1: I think so, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. It got a bad name because a lot of people didn't know how to use it and just created the worst guitar tones on the on the planet
1: yeah i think so
0: but there's a lot of gear like that that you know somebody who knows what they're doing uses and then a bunch of people who don't know what they're using use and it like gets associated with the people who don't know what they're doing for some weird reason
1: yeah i think people were like you know they were just cranking those levels on shit and like just to this muddy low end and like i said on ours it, it was like maybe two clicks past you know unity gain and it was just awesome on the new album you know I, I ran all kinds of extra gain stages you know it's a stock jubilee you know you know it's not by nature gainy enough for this stuff so i ran i went really old school in my overdrive choice i used a boss super overdrive with the level on 10 and the drive off just to like crunch up the front end and then i ran it into my proton's uh signature mid boost which is just a mid parametric ran that into a noise suppressor, a boss, you know, and into the input with a little bit of that BB in the, in the gate, in the effects loop. I mean, and it was just savage, totally crushing.
0: When, uh, like when in the timeline, it sounds like you were always fucking with gear. Like, like you said, like you're building gear, but when in the timeline did you start to fuck with like the pedals and, heads and the order of pedals and what you put before the amp like when when did that start happening
1: oh uh, forever yeah <laughs> like we we're always tinkerers i remember once having like all three of my marshall stacks at an old exodus rehearsal being slaved and the actual tone was coming out of my baby marshall head you know the little mini stacks they had mm-hmm. and uh i was going out of that and i was coming out of its headphone out into a splitter into the low inputs of the heads and it was crushing it was like really massive and shockingly good except it only sounded good when it was really loud like too loud to like use on stage anyway because as soon as you turned it down and the heads volume came down the little head took over and it just sounded kind of like a little practice amp but you know we rick and i would plug everything into everything we didn't care you know let's see what happens we do this Oh, shit, we just blew the breaker. I guess uh, <laughs> that didn't work. We have no lights and no power now. You know, whatever. Okay, we'll try it. You know, that's a little bit of that Eddie Van Halen upbringing in us. You know, like, always read the stories of what he did. You know, knowing how he built guitars and you were doing it, you know, out of need. We are never afraid to, like, try anything. Like, I think back in the 90s, uh, Tom Hunting, my you know, drummer, had come across a giant stock of new old stock military tubes. And uh, oh, like, I still nice. have them, you know, some of those tubes, I, they're super valuable, worth a fortune. I don't know what they even go for, but there were a whole lot of brand new military grade spec EEL 34s in there. And I used all of them and it's fucking awesome, you know? And, you know, and I'd, I'd do a straight non-biased tube swap. If it didn't blow a fuse, it fine. The sound killer, let it go. You know, the typical way everybody does it, you know, an old Marshall head you have to bias that thing. And sometimes the the correct bias setting is the incorrect one. The amp sounds neutered, you know, and tame.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That is actually one of the most disappointing things where you think that a that a tube change is going to be the answer and it gets biased, and it's like, what the hell just happened?
1: Dude, that happened with my vintage modded marshals. You know, I, I had them, uh, service and cleaned up and, and stuff. And they still sound like one of the greatest eight hundreds ever, but they were fire breathing monsters before. And Todd Langner, the guy who modded them, he's passed away several years ago and he had been out of the amp business for decades. So it's kind of impossible to, I'd have to find a guy who studied Todd's work to like do them properly and get them back the way they once were.
0: That's the beauty of modern digital technology is it can last forever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, modern, modern apps, you know, you have all this gain at your fingertips and they're awesome. And if I have to fly to some far reaching place to do a show and they have like one of these modern apps there, you know, I know I can do a show on it, but I, I find that the not having that quest for tone kind of makes your tone sounds like, like a lot of other people. I like the journey. Yeah. My 800s, when Todd modded them, you know, he did everybody in the Bay Area's amps. He said that I had uh, some truly special amps. He said they were like really something golden about them. And I know other guys, some other guys in one of the other Bay Area bands went and picked up their modded amps after Todd had finished the first of mine. And Todd played them my amp and they left theirs behind. (laughs) They said, ours aren't done listen to his you know what the fuck you know mine sounds like shit next to that thing it, it was just the amps i got really good ones you know
0: i mean it's the same with outboard gear in the studio like sure uh you know one you can buy the same model 1176 and one is going to sound fucking great like you put anything through it and it just is beautiful and then another one and it's like This is some weak bullshit and it's the same exact model. I've owned over the years, three different block letters and each one of them has sounded completely different. One of them is fucking phenomenal. The other one is phenomenal sometimes. And the other one sounds like shit.
1: Yeah. It's crazy.
0: Yeah. They're all block letters.
1: That's the lucky thing with my Jubilees. You know, I have 11 of those fucking things, you know, thank you Slayer. (laughs) I have 11 (laughs) of them. And when we did the new album, I plugged in the first one. I didn't even, you know, I took three with me because, you know, we were driving up to the mountains and, you know, I fill up my Jeep with what I took and I didn't try out a different one. I just plugged in and now this one's killer and they're super consistent. You know, the new reissues, it's the same with my ESP guitars. You know, I could pretty much randomly be handed any one of them by my tech and I'd be fine with it. You know, they're that consistent right across the board you know
0: that is a great thing that is that is a pretty great thing how into engineering are you
1: um i used to be a lot more into it you know um uh i'm in the process of building my first home studio you know um i my property i have it used to be a wine cellar basically if you think of a bilbo baggins home that's what i have (laughs) Uh, it's built under the ground it's a giant round thing with these wooden doors it's a hobbit home i need to do some soundproofing because it's basically made out of a giant steel silo and uh but i painted the whole thing you know white and the floors looks looks like a sea of blood it's blood red and then of course (laughs) i splattered so I'm, i'm gonna get that rolling here soon you know and uh delve more into the world of digital recording, you know, because, you know, my engineering skills back in the day were basically analog, you know, I was real good at fixing shit. Like, you know, I'd have really good engineers and there were times when there was a mistake made in the tracking and we're trying to figure out how to like correct this length on something that actually had something played in it. And uh, I was really good at like, no, no, wait, we're going to like go on another track. John Tempest will play the snare here. Then we'll put it on the fucking, you know, the half inch and we'll fly it back in and I'll sample the snare and bam, on the lexicon. And <laughs> you know, like, you got it. Uh, just, uh, it was a good problem solver.
0: So like when you're recording an album now, like I'm assuming from what you just said that you guys recorded the last Exodus yourselves, right?
1: Yes. Yes, we did.
0: So who's handling the recording?
1: We had uh Steve laguti a long time. Oh, Steve. The cool. Yeah. yeah. And Steve, you know, worked for Exodus before. And, uh, we knew he was home. We knew he didn't have anything to do. None of us did, COVID. <laughs> and we also knew he was very proficient in Pro Tools. Yes. What we didn't know is that he has an entire like full-fledged Pro Tools rig, like portable, you know, and we shipped the entire thing out. Typically, um, when we do an album, we'll book a studio for drums. You need, you know, a million mic inputs and everything and a good room. And then we do everything else on our own, you know, with like a little portable Pro Tools rig. You have the ability to track two tracks at a time and that's it and uh this time we we could we had three studios set up a pre-production drum kit mic'd up and then the real one and we had all the inputs we could ever want so i could record all the mics i wanted at one time and it was awesome and steve did a killer job you know and w- there were times when we had some issues on one song and we we're sitting there butting heads over how to fix it and i think i was right again <laughs> was like no just do this do this and it'll be fixed and like we were like fucking pulling our hair out one time
0: steve's actually great
1: oh he's amazing of,
0: yeah he's one of the most knowledgeable uh engineers i've ever known actually
1: yeah you know we had so many microphones and stuff and it was awesome and we recorded the album very old school as far as i felt liberated to like have the ability to like put up four mics if I wanted, you know, cause usually we're re- using a little home pro tools thing for overdubs, which gives you two simultaneous tracks. And one's always going to be a DI, you know, so it's like one microphone. I had like several. It was awesome.
0: <laughs> do you do any um, recording on your own? So like when you're writing?
1: Yeah. And lately, uh, you know, leading in this album, I was doing a lot of, um, Stuff on GarageBand and uh, on the song "Prescribing Horror" on the new album. All the clean part, then the super creepy, haunting melody was straight out of my GarageBand. I, like I didn't see the point of re-recording them. They were just done with plugins, but the vibe was there. And so we just imported it all, and then redid drums, bass, and guitars, and obviously added vocals. But uh, you know that's kind of my the extent. But I'm still that guy who throws his eye is his iPhone in front of the app and hits voice recorder, you know, and records the riff. So I don't forget them.
0: I mean, whatever you got to do.
1: Yeah. I can always hear the different parts in my head when I, you know, where other people might feel the need to like multi-track it and try it out. I kind of know where it's going to go and I just do it in my head. I'm lazy and all that, you know, I've done that before where I was uh, doing engineering shit at home and I found that I'd spend 90% of my time just fucking with it and 10 percent actually recording it and so now i just try to work on it and do that later you know to where i'm not interrupting the the creative process but you know like on on the song i mentioned uh the like melody part doesn't it's not really a solo it's like this melody that i owe entirely to the process of multi-tracking because the you know the song's in drop c and uh the first note of the melodies is um, in B, you know, it's like a half step sh- flat, but, uh, it, but it's intentional and it sounds so haunting and just fucked up and scary, you know, and I might not have ever tried that if I hadn't heard it with the track, you know, I would have jumped in on, you know, uh, in key note, but, it, and then the harmony I did is actually in key. So it like created this like twisted sense of drama it's like one of my favorite moments on the album. And I didn't want to fuck with re recording it. It's like, it's really cool. I spent like that 90% of the time when I tracked it playing with plugins and actually found a sound that was really kind of badass. And uh, I knew I'd never, it, if I redid it, it would sound like just a straight guitar track.
0: For me, the takeaway with modern gear is to use it for what it's good for, but not let it make you lazy and not let it destroy the creative process so like what you just said is like the perfect use for that scenario getting too wrapped up in the recording side of things can distract from writing and playing and i've actually known some guitar players who refused to get a pro tools rig or anything because they said my focus is guitar like if i start engineering i'm gonna spend less time on guitar
1: yeah totally
0: which is true like i know that once i started getting into engineering uh my guitar playing hours went down i mean you only have so many hours in a day in a lifetime so got to decide what you're going to spend them on
1: yeah i mean there were times back in the 90s uh, you know when i just had my four track cassette recorder right and i had the one track you know as a dedicated midi sync track to my drum machine and my little alesis sr16 and I would do an entire song drums program perfectly everything. And like, and it ended up exactly that way on the album, but I spent so fucking much time doing it. You know, like I had the riffs wrote, did I really feel that I needed to spend all these hours putting the drum track down when I could just teach it to Johnny, you know, who's drumming at the time, <laughs> you know, and um, it's cool. You know, I'd, ch- I'd show people, check this out, hit play. And the drums come in and there's two guitar tracks and a bass track. And, And it sounded cool, but what a waste of time. (laughs) I'd rather sit and uh, I'm a riff guy. I'm a riff based guy. All I need is a guitar and amp. The rest comes later. But I am building this studio because, you know, I want it for more than just songwriting. You know, I want to like feel like maybe put together a little Twitch channel and shit like that, you know, where I could sit and like laugh at like the horrible reality shows I'm addicted to (laughs) (laughs) shit like that.
0: I'm curious what your opinion is on this because, you know, your career has been so long, but I've thought for a while that the definition of being a professional musician has changed some in the, like, it's almost like being a professional musician now means, you know, the music part, of course, but it also means having like some, it doesn't have to be like Andy Sneap level, but some level Of recording ability and then some level of like video ability
1: i think so totally
0: so you see that
1: i think so well you look on um i'll look on my instagram and every guitar player i know is sitting there recording tracks at home and uh and you know like i do it a little but i just find it slows me down a lot but you know i think you kind of need that ability now you know like especially if you're young and starting out and you get a record deal, you know, you're going to save a whole lot of money being able to track most of the album yourself, you know, like everybody seems to do now.
0: If you were starting out now, would you go that way?
1: Yeah. You get a small album budget and, uh, and you could go buy a, you know, an interface and record all the guitars and vocals and shit in your bedroom and uh, keep the money, you know, rather than like get some small record deal and you have to go buy studio time for, you know, three or four weeks or whatever
0: i think i honestly think it's great the more that bands can do for themselves an artist can do for themselves the better i mean why not
1: yeah totally i mean i'm fortunate that like jack my bass player is like a super confident engineer and he's really really into his pro tools stuff and he engineered the last album Mm -hmm. and we wanted to free him up on this one and you know, just work on the bass. And that's where I brought in Steve, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to delve more into it. I have all the gear. I just, you know, in the past, I was like, ah, oh, the garage band works great. I'm fucking really fine with it. It does work. great. Right? And when, when I was working with GarageBand, I was just going guitar right into the mic input of my fucking laptop, no interface. At wow. All.
0: Holy shit.
1: <laughs> and I'd tell people that, and I'd show them and I'd say, dude, I got zero latency, not one bit. And I had a plug in that Andy Sneap created for tune tracks based on my own guitar tone. Anyway, he calls it like Bay area thrash or something like that. Cause you know, I wasn't being paid for it. So you're not using my name. <laughs> and, uh, I had to plug right in and it was just, go gong, gong. it's killer. It worked great. You know, I, I didn't see the need to hook the shit up. Another way to slow me down.
0: That's extreme efficiency.
1: Dude. I had the little mini, mini plug to a little quarter inch. And i just plug, go to guitar right in. And, and lo and behold, it worked. And it, worked, it works amazing. And there's no latency at all.
0: The latency is what makes it so hard to play through these things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't have any, so why fuck with it?
0: It makes sense. And the thing is, I'm sure that some engineer types listening to this are going to be like, what the fuck? But the fact is that you got the results you were going for and it didn't slow you down
1: some of those tracks are on the album and if i'd never told you if i never told you what they were you'd never know but i already did i said on the song prescribing horror the clean intro and the little haunting center melody part you know if i would never told you no one would ever heard it and said those are the parts recorded on garageband without a without a audio interface sounds killer people
0: don't know how stuff is made and they don't care until you you know, until like you preface it or like I've noticed that sometimes if you tell a band we're going to use this rig in the studio and they say, well, I hate that kind of rig, but that's one thing. But if you just play it for them and they like it, they won't even know that that's what it is. And my for instance, is when the Kemper first came out, I'd have some bands coming to the studio with hor- horrifically bad rigs. But they wanted to use them. But like they were not like the situation you were talking about where this guitar player has a magnificent tone. Like they were coming in with like garbage. Garbage. Yeah. And so I wanted to use the Kemper. And they just were not cool with it at all. So I played them an A B I did of my Kemper versus one of my block letters. And I was like, guess which one is which? And uh, without fail, they thought that the Kemper was the amp. They couldn't tell the difference because I wasn't telling them which one it was.
1: Andy did the same thing. Um, He reamped a section on uh, like a couple of Testament albums ago, like early in the whole Kemper, dawn of the Kemper era. And um, I saw in like his forum, you know, people were talking shit. And I guess uh, they just reamped a section in one song. Wasn't even a whole song. Like I might've like kind of like did something different or maybe Eric changed the part and played it himself and emailed it to Andy or something like that. Andy told his people were talking shit oh, it can't sound the same. And Andy said, if you could spot this, the location in the song where it happened, I'll give you the Kemper. He said, I'll mail it to you at my own expense. You can have it. If you could figure it out. No one knew. Of course not. And there's a lot of videos online of people being stumped and fooled by the Kemper, you know, Comparison.
0: Yeah, it's it, people cannot tell. In fact, one of the funniest things that happens when mixing, and Brown, I'm sure you've done this, is when you're tweaking on a bypass plugin and you can hear that it's doing things, but it's actually not. It's all in your head. The plugin's been bypassed the whole time, nothing is changing, but you're fucking with the settings and you're tricking yourself. And you believe that you're changing things. It's a total illusion, but it just, it kind of just goes to show that people don't know what they're listening to.
1: That sounds like me when my nine bolts go and get on my EMGs. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the last thing I check, you know, like something's wrong with my sound and I'll spend like two hours twisting knobs, trying to figure out why something's like gone kind of haywire. And then, Oh, let me check the battery. Oh, that's the end. Fuck. Uh, put a new battery. Oh, look, we're back.
0: So, One last thing I want to talk about. Um, I'm curious now at this point in your career, what role does guitar practice play for you? Like, do you have like a routine? Do you just play like when there's a project? I know that you're dealing with the injury situation, so you can't overdo it, but how much do you find yourself actually just practicing?
1: When I'm not dealing with rehabilitation, just trying to get back to playing, I play all the time. I still practice. I still I'll see um, guys I know, guys I don't know online and Instagram or whatever, and they're shredding some lick. I'll sit down and try to like cop that shit. I still try to learn, you know, at the same time, you know, I'm kind of stuck in my ways, you know, so I'll rather than learn exactly what someone else did, I'll just kind of like learn a little bit of it and make my own version of it or whatever. But, you know, I still like the practice. I I wish I could play more. You know, I, I love playing guitar. It makes me happy, you know, and, um, and nothing makes me happier than a super crushing devastating guitar tone. You know. and it starts lights up my day every time you know yeah you know? love that shit you know fucking love it you know and i'd play right now if i could you know which i can but uh you know i'm doing press and all that but uh you know, I did finally put, plugged in a guitar rig in my Hobbit house. That's when I know noticed I really need some soundproofing, but leads sounded amazing.
0: <laughs> you got the room.
1: <laughs> Sounds like I'm in a cave. You know, the solos are awesome, but the rhythms are quite messy.
0: <laughs> do you do like regimented practice, like? to a metronome, like down picking exercises or like any of that?
1: Not to a metronome, but yeah, I do regimented things to keep my right hand going strong and to keep the left hand limber. You know what I mean? Aside from the elbows, you know, I've got typical 57 year old man issues, you know, arthritis, my hands are stiff as hell, but they're not stiff when I play. But like I wake up in the morning and it's like, Oh, it's oh, oh, just such a mess, you know, but you know, that's just repetitive injury time. And, you know, just wear and tear, you know, but, um, yeah, I do work on the riffs to make sure that when a show comes around that I'm prepared.
0: Metal, it's kind of like a sport, like when it comes to the physical side of playing.
1: Oh, totally. It's totally, it's like, like Olympic level shit.
0: Yeah. A lot more than other genres. Like if you're going to play metal, you kind of have to keep
1: up on rhythm for sure. I know a million guys, you know, friends who are just the most shredding and insane guitar players. They can't play rhythm at all. (laughs) <laughs> they got no chops at all because why it's hard playing lead. Like, you know I mean? Even the great guys who are doing shit I could never do on lead. You know, it doesn't have the physical beat down on your body that rhythm does. So yeah, rhythm playing, that's like some Olympic level power lifting.
0: I, I agree. Also the rhythm playing. I mean, that's what you're doing. Even if you're the lead guitar player, You're doing the rhythm stuff for 90% of the song.
1: More than that, usually, like 95. Yet some guys are only concentrating on that little 5% when they're going, you know, (laughs) I'd rather like play the other bulk of the song well.
0: I mean, the solo matters, of course, but like, not at the expense of the other 95% of the song.
1: No, not at all. I mean, you know, you should always be a good rhythm guitar player, some better than others, but there's no excuse to look like a guy who's ignored it his whole life. You know, if, you know, if you're going to play metal and, and you've never put in any effort in that, you're playing the wrong music.
0: I agree. I, I, I think that if you focus on rhythm, your lead playing will get better.
1: Yeah. I mean, my lead playing is very rhythmic anyway. You know, I I play a lot of the riffs like I was bashing out a riff, you know, I mean, in lead wise, you know, I know like six licks You know, (laughs) just playing real fast and I'm pretty good at the ones I know, but I I don't have a massive arsenal of, uh, you know, lead chops. I'm good at the ones I do and get the solos out of the way. All right, good. That's done. Back to the riff. You know, that's where I like to live anyway.
0: It's more fun
1: way more fun come on
0: yeah seriously do you quad or double riffs
1: i used to do four tracks back in the day i only do two left and right doesn't need any more than that and you start like adding extra layers on it also softens your pick attack yep and uh you lose some of that grind and that aggressive nature that comes with having the same amount of tracks as actual guitar players are going to play it
0: it has a very different kind of sound like i get it like there's some stuff where it makes sense definitely for more like rock oriented stuff or chordy kind of stuff but the more precise the more riffy yeah something gets i think you start the more you add the more you're actually taking away
1: totally i mean the furthest i'll go now and like i said in uh from bonded by blood up to Impact is imminent. Everything was four tracks of rhythms. Now I might add a third track on like a chorus or something if I want it to jump out a little bit more and be a little bit bigger. But even that's rare. I only do it occasionally on a couple of spots or maybe just a second of some chord that I want to be a little bit, have a little more impact, you know, but um, that's about it. I, I, don't, I don't think it's needed, you know, just two guitars.
0: Also, two guitars and a great mixer goes a long way. Two guitars, a, gr- a great tone and a great mixer, yeah.
1: Usually for us, it's two guitars, uh, one mic aside, that's it. You know, the new album, you know, we, you know, added in you know, a second mic aside, you know. We, we mic'd up about like six, you know, but we didn't use them all. You know, that way Andy had the, the option of listening through to them. And we ended up going with the 421 and a 57, you know, super old school combination. Classic. And we tried out all kinds of ribbon mics and, you know, and and other stuff and it just went with the classic combo and it was just perfect no need to fuck with it
0: someone in one of uh, our uh facebook groups posted a picture the other day um he was uh yeah you know what i'm gonna mention yeah okay so he was uh look i'm glad that he's trying but uh he was miking up a cab and there were no shit like seven or eight mics on it there was like you know like fredman technique on one speaker like multiple microphones on the other like distance mics room mics it was a lot of shit and i listened to the file and it just sounded like phasey garbage i was just thinking like dude like get one mic get that sounding awesome and then go from there if you feel like something's missing add another mic but like If you can't get it sounding savage with just one mic, you're definitely not going to get it sounding savage with seven or eight. It's just not going to happen.
1: No, we use two mics, two cabs. One had vintage thirties, the other had Celestian seventy fives, and you know. And one thing I loved on this album is I was able to have like uh, a little bit of a room mic, just you know, back about fifteen feet. Because for solos, I like a slight bit of out of phaseness, You know, I think that's what makes like the tones thick. But yeah, you don't want seven mics at once. If you look at the pictures while we're tracking, it looks like that because we were trying out mics and there was like fucking eight mics up there, but we weren't running them all at once.
0: (laughs) That's the problem with looking at pictures from a studio session or somebody's settings and then just assuming what's going on there.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, because you can't listen to a picture.
1: No, you cannot.
0: Yeah, you don't actually know what's going on. All you're seeing is there were lots of mics up, but you have no idea what was used based off of that picture.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I love talking gear. I could do this shit all day. <laughs>
0: yeah, likewise.
1: We haven't even got into gotten into my pedal collection yet.
0: <laughs> What's in your pedal collection?
1: Oh god, a couple of different talk boxes, all kinds of stuff. Um, I just am a stock stomp box junkie, but I do have a couple of the coolest pedals ever. I have one that's built into a can of cheese whiz. What?
0: <laughs> all right, I want to. I want to hear. I want to hear about this.
1: Kerry's check Anders. He took an EMG Afterburner, a little like guitar bit, mounted uh preamp boost, and he mounted it in a emptied out can of cheese whiz and uh i have it works perfectly fine you push the little knob on top of the can turns it on and off i also have one made into a giant pill like it looks like a giant, <laughs> like like a giant fucking quaalude or something like that so yeah those are a couple of my favorites
0: are they for fun or do you actually like do you find the pedals to be like essential to tone
1: I find them essential to tone, and I'm one of those guys who's not at all afraid to record straight down, committing the effect that I've got. A lot of guys, you know, they're like, "No, no, you're, you're stuck with it." You know, we'll use a plugin. A plugin flanger on a guitar is never going to sound like a flanger hitting the input of your amp. Definitely not. Not in a thousand years. Ask Eddie Van Halen, rest in peace. You know, Eddie, and with all of his, you know, classic tracks with the phase 90 and all that. That shit went to tape like that. And, you know, there's a reason they sound so great because he's not trying to imitate it.
0: There's a lot to be said for having confidence in your tone, making a decision and committing. And actually, you know, like even with new school producers who are working in the box only, don't use any outboard or anything like that. The really great ones I know still commit. Like, so even though they're not uh, using uh, pedals and outboard gear, they're still using that philosophy of getting a tone that you're super confident with and printing it and then never looking back.
1: If it sounds great, it is great. It's as simple as that. Roll with it, hit record.
0: Yeah. Don't give DIs is a ballsy move.
1: I only give Andy DIs in the event of an emergency. Yeah. Something happened and the track gets solely corrupted or some shit. Like, all right, we have a DI. You know, we could, we can rebuild this, but, uh, I, you know, it's just, there's a track waster to me.
0: It's a good safety net because emergencies do happen.
1: They do happen. And that's why, that's why we make sure it's there.
0: So do you run overdrives as part of like your regular go-to or is it more just the EQ that goes ahead of the amp?
1: Depends if I'm using the Jubilee, I overdrive it for sure. You know, the camper, I don't need it. And the EQ sound is already profiled in there anyway.
0: Yeah. What are you trying to get out of the overdrive? Is it more gain or is it tightening Crunch. Crunch.
1: More attack. Okay. You know, I only I run the I run the level all the way up, the drive's not even on. It's on zero. Pedals are good.
0: Yeah, they do different things. I think that uh one of the best functions for an overdrive is to act like a sort of EQ for an amp but in a way that an eq won't do like it has a way of taming the low end in a way that eqing the low end doesn't quite do
1: absolutely tightens things up some people will say it thins it out but when you're playing in such low end focused centered music like i do you know with guitars and stuff you want to like tighten it up a little
0: yeah it's really really important if not like all the palm mutes will definitely get out of control
1: yeah totally yeah
0: there's no situation where they don't basically
1: <laughs> love palm jung. <mutes.
0: laughs> <laughs> they are pretty great you can't judge gear based off of spec sheets
1: no no not at- or price i
0: agree in the recording world that happens too like uh you'll have people who assume that a piece of gear sounds a certain way because they'll look at a spec sheet but then you'll get people who make records that sound great who actually use the gear and know what it does. And like, it becomes this giant argument, but I think you have to actually listen to what it is that you intend to use.
1: I I mean, I I prefer a Marshall cab above all like with Slayer, you know, um, they had the, the mode four cabs, the oversized ones. And uh, it was the last, like maybe in the last couple of years of Slayer, I convinced the management and and everybody and Carrie and them. I said, these speakers, they were shot. They were old, very old speakers that have been through hell and back. And so we reloaded all the cabs, all of them. There's a lot of cabs. And uh, I was able to finally load my side of the back line with my preferred speaker, which is the Vintage 30. And I'm so happy. (laughs) It's like, yes, a little bright, a little brighter, you know, and more throaty. More mid.
0: Were you guys plugging in all the cabs?
1: All of them across the bottom, like six cabs aside. Yeah.
0: That is still a shitload of cabs.
1: That's a shitload of cabs.
0: (laughs) Sounds fun.
1: And like I said before, six cabs all on side fills and wedges for me. This fucking thing of beauty. You stand out there and you hit a chord, hit a big deep E chord, and like, you know, and I bring friends out, check this out, and I stand right here. Boom, they go, Whoa, that is fucking so rad. (laughs) The power, you know.
0: Did it hurt at all to be like pummeled with that
1: level? No, because it wasn't like an overwhelming level of like, Ow, high frequencies, my ears hurt. It was just a coupling of power, you know, because you had the row of cabs behind you. You have the wedges in front of you, side fills with the 18s off to the, you know, the side, and you'd find that one spot and stand in it, and just this earth-rumbling vibration, or just take control, and it's just it's a thing of pure bliss. <laughs> that's why i like it you know but then like i said before when i was to play solos i want to get out of that submerging and i want to go over here and hear little hall and and I'm like why can't i hear it you know well because you're fucking in a quicksand of heavy <laughs> you're stuck in it you're trying to get out and you're failing
0: so you don't use in-ears no i do not do you just dislike them or like you found that what you're describing now is what works best for you
1: you know, I tried them for like one show with Slayer. I took them out third songs, and uh, you know, no one else. And Paul uses them; no one else does. Uh, the fact that I like to find sweet spots on the stage, and I play better in ear. The sound goes with you everywhere. If your yep. sound is perfect, it's awesome. Your sound goes to the shitty spots of the stages. I, but you can no longer run away from your onstage sound to find that little bit of the hall or things like that. You know. I mean, I know guys who love them, like, you know, Zach Wild loves them now, but you know, guys like him, they've worked really hard at getting it right. And their monitor engineer is putting some hall in there, you know, so that it's not so dry and transistory.
0: I feel like with in-ears too, you're missing a lot of the sensations that you're, that you're used to on stage, like the vibrations.
1: Yeah, totally. And you know, I know, like Hammett, you know, he uses in ears, and he says his ears ring hard, you know, because just because he got a little speaker stuck inside your head doesn't mean you have them, don't have them too loud. Sometimes
0: it's dangerous either way. If you play rock or metal, you're gonna fuck up your hearing.
1: <laughs> you're playing with fire. Huh? Yeah. What'd you say? <laughs> yeah. I have a hearing aid. I married her. <laughs> I'm pretty deaf nowadays. Uh, the high frequencies, which are the ones my wife occupies. <laughs> That's my excuse for I don't hear her so well. But no, I, like, you know, the high frequency loss is real. It's no joke.
0: I mean, it's just part of the job, I think. Like, there's no way to be surrounded by that much volume and not lose some hearing.
1: I think what saved me over the years is like I haven't used the top cab for decades. I, I hate the ones up by your head, which would blast right at your ears yeah. anyway. I, I need to hear the low end coming coupled from the stage down by my ass and not up in my face, you know
0: yeah that's wise that that's just asking for it is top caps
1: i hate the sound of a cab up up there anyway you know it's it's too harsh
0: man drummers you can always tell what side their chinas are on if they only have one yeah that's the side they can't hear on (laughs) totally i just think any any career you choose is gonna have side effects and the career of uh metal fucks with your high-end hearing eventually
1: Your hearing, your neck, your back, your knees, all that shit. (laughs) But I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm happy doing it.
0: Yeah. I mean, headbanging is just not like, it's not a good idea.
1: No, it's horrible.
0: No, it's a really bad idea.
1: And I showed a chiropractor once, you know, what I do. And he's like, you shouldn't be doing that. That's really (laughs) horrible. That's fucking horrible for you. He was horrified. He's like, what are you doing? You're just giving yourself whiplash. Yeah. Willingly. Who does that? <laughs> me and a lot of other guys?
0: I remember the first like festival tour I ever did out was in my 20s and the dudes that were in their mid and late 30s were all complaining about back and neck problems and uh, and I was like, I guess this is the future. That's it.
1: Every joint on my body is fucked. My shoulders are okay. <laughs> really uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take that as a win.
0: I, I'm actually, I'm impressed because uh, holding guitars with a strap will fuck that up.
1: My guitars are heavy as hell too. Was, uh, the ESP version of the Signature, they weigh a ton. I asked for them that way and I live to regret it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very heavy guitar.
0: Do you believe that the the weight of the guitar affects the tone?
1: To an extent, to an extent. I mean, my favorite guitars I own sound-wise are all pretty huge beefy thick thing so I guess there's truth to that but I have zero problem playing my Ltd model live I do it all the time and I'll do it later in the set sometimes when I'm having bad you know having a bad back day you know because it weighs significantly less and they still sound great
0: so what is it about the heavy guitars that you prefer
1: I just there's a denser sound to them you know because mine all have like a maple top underneath them on you know underneath the paint it's maple top on Mahogany body and neck, and it's just perfect combination.
0: So what about pickups? We didn't cover those. What uh what role does that play for you?
1: Um, it's a huge part. You know, I use you know, I've got my own signature set of EMGs, but it's basically an 81 in the bridge and an 89R in the neck, you know, with the R being the single coils on the neck side instead of closer to the middle. And um when I track, I tend to use passives. I like recording with passives, I like actives live, just one of those things. I used a set of EMG passives in my Yamaha on the new album. It's, they sound amazing.
0: What do you prefer about passive in the studio?
1: Not worrying about unplugging my in- input jack. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's just something a little more rock about them, you know, especially on the lead side of things, you know, a little more of a classic hard rock sound.
0: Passives now, like, man, there's some amazingly powerful passive pickups now.
1: Yeah. Crazy.
0: Yeah. It didn't, you know maybe there was a point in time where that didn't exist but now there's most definitely some pretty intense sounding passives out there
1: totally i agree
0: it's been a pleasure man thank you for taking the time
1: no problem and i hope to see you guys sometime soon
0: good luck with the rest of uh press and uh the record
1: all right guys you take care